This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. Historian Peter Cochran joined me to talk about his new book, Best We Forget, The War for White Australia, 1914 to 1918. You are, as I said, tuned into Uncommon Sense, taking you through till noon. And I'm really um, excited to have with me on the phone Peter Cochran, who is uh, a historian and he's also a novelist. And he's written a book uh, which is called Best We Forget, The War for White Australia, 1914 to 1918. And uh, Peter joins me on the phone uh, to talk about this excellent uh, book and what uh, he's discovered. So, um, hello there, Peter. Hello, Amy. Uh, great to great to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you, and uh, congratulations on this book, um, which Thanks is so out. Much. Yeah, it's out through Text uh, Publishing, and it's an excellent uh, book because it certainly makes accessible um, a part of history that has been kind of fairly disparate and uh, mm. really quite dry. And from my um, perspective, I was fascinated by, um, you know, the background to the White Australia policy and mm-hmm. um, and certainly the conscription referendums that occurred uh, in the World War One, and really were such an, a microcosm um, of the kind of conflicts that were um, that existed at the time the divides between Protestant and Catholic and workers and business and um, mm. you know it really did kind of um, highlight the the divisions and um, the kind of political lines uh, that existed even though the the party lines were a bit more blurred um, as yeah. as we'll get to find out um, mm-hmm. but your book does go through a bit of the history um, of yep. of Australia's experience with race and I guess the fear um, that exists from the perspective of not only the population but particularly the politicians and the concerns that they had um, being an outpost, I guess, of yep. Britain at the time. Yep. Can you share a bit about um, what... I guess the Australian psyche was at the time and what the politicians were um, preoccupied with in mm-hmm. terms of race. Yes, I can, I can do that. I should say first that I think the book will, as you suggest, it come as a bit of a surprise to many readers because, of course, we went off to war um, to, be, uh, to join the fight um, with the British, with the British um, for the British Empire against Germany. I'm not arguing with that. What I'm talking about is what I've called the story behind the story, and that's the story of... The book essentially is about the way that race fear of um, one particular Asian nation, Japan, and distrust of Britain in that regard because Japan and Britain were very closely allied back then, the way that those two things drove the strategic thinking of Commonwealth parliamentarians um, prior to the war, during the war, and the peace negotiations thereafter. But of course, as you say, there is a background to that. It goes race fear, and fear of Asia in particular goes deeper. So the book, um, although the subtitle is The War for White Australia 1914-18, the book does have some introductory chapters which survey that um, previous period. Um, looking at the way that in the first instance, uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, there was a great deal of anxiety about Chinese arriving in in Australia before the big worry about Japan, it's China. And um, 
a lot of the reactions back then in the 1880s and the 1890s were similar to the reactions um, in 30 years earlier in the gold rushes. Um, great anxiety, great um, racial fear, I think, and all sorts of notions about the racial qualities of mind and the racial practices that um, the Chinese were bringing with them into Australia. Um, a lot of it, um, a, a lot of it um, arising, I think, because of the way in which race was thought about at that time. Um, we often just think about race in terms of colour and, you know, physiognomy, the shape of the face and so on, but the racism of that time, which was really a sort of pseudoscience, was the belief that these surface things, colour, physiognomy, really connected to deeper qualities of mind, as one of the politicians put it. So, and, and on the basis of those qualities, um, the races were ordered in a sort of God-given hierarchy with the whites at the top. And there was great, great worry um, throughout the European world and its, you know, its the dominions and the US, the United States, about whether or not that hierarchy was safe and stable. Great deal of anxiety about the possibility that the, that the, um, that the non-white races might overrun the white races. So that's the, that's the background, that's, uh, which in Australia was largely focused on the Chinese. But at the same time, the Japanese had made um, a determined effort not to be like China and the rest of Asia. I mean, I think there was two colonial... There was a colonial perspective on Asia, which divided Asia into two types. Um, degenerate Asia was one phrase. Some of the language is pretty horrifying to us today. Degenerate Asia and formidable Asia. And as Japan modernised rapidly, industrialised rapidly, uh, um, with uh, great assistance from... Britain in that latter part of the 19th century and in the early early 20th century, as that happened, and Japan and Britain became closer and closer, um, so Australia got more and more worried. So that when 1902, the Anglo-Japanese alliance is formed, a military alliance, um, Japan by that time is probably the most powerful naval force in the Pacific. When it destroyed the Russian Navy in 1905, the Australians certainly knew it was. Um, without a doubt. And there's Britain with this very, very close Asiatic, to use that their term, this very close Asiatic um, for, um, nation at the centre of power in London. So the real worry, and it only got worse, the worry only got worse as time went on, as the, the world, they didn't know it was coming, but as, of course, the World War World War One approached. And the big worry was an, there was an Asiatic, for Australia anyway, which, of course, had its white Australia policy to protect as of 1902. The big worry was there was an Asiatic nation dictating policy at the centre of the empire. And that, in fact, did affect considerably the way in which the... Um, the the, legis the, legis the white Australia legislation was debated in Australia in the new Commonwealth Parliament in 1901. It affected it profoundly because um, the British, um, with the Japanese in their ear, 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 were insisting to the Australian Parliament, to Prime Minister Barton and his, his government, that it must not be. Even if, if Australia is going to lock itself up as a race-pure white nation, it must, the legislation must not be explicit about discriminating against Asians. Mm. And so there was this sort of... There was the, what we, we now know, we now refer to as the European language test, which was a very thinly disguised way of 
having white Australia and pretending it wasn't specifically directed at, at Asians, but everybody knew it was, including the Japanese, who were lobbying heavily in Melbourne. They had a consul here, a man called Mr H. Itaki, and they had a, a, a resident minister in London, Hayashi Tadasu, Baron Hayashi Tadasu. They were lobbying constantly um, against the white Australia policy, saying, it, how, how can Britain be um, in a vital military alliance with a, with a nation such as Japan, which is as civilised as any other nation in Europe, with its arts, its military power, its, its um, sophisticated government and so on. How can, how can the empire have a country like Australia that is actually um, traducing us at every turn? I mean, the, the, the debate for the White Australia policy, or over the, the Immigration Restriction Bill, as it was called in the 1900, which I, I've dedicated Chapter 3 to that. It's called, Chapter 3 is called The Declaration of White Australia. It really is quite extraordinary, some of the language that's used and some of the things that are said about, about Asians. One of the most interesting ones, because the Japanese thought being so, quote-unquote, civilised, that they, they, they might be exempted somehow. But one of the most interesting arguments was that the more educated an Asiatic is, the more cunning he is. Um, and that, that was repeated on a number of occasions in, in the debate, that, that um, it's no good saying they're civilised, it's no good saying they're educated, they're, that means they're more cunning. Um, and I don't know how much you want me to say about that debate, but it is very interesting. Well, yes, it is interesting, and I know you've gone into a lot of detail in terms of mm. looking at the transcripts in Hansard, um, mm. and it is really enlightening to see the primary evidence um, mm. on the record. Sure is, yeah. yeah. And every MP, as you said, had kind of a different approach, different arguments, but they all had similar themes, which was that, yes. you know, this is a battle, um, it's a survival of the fittest, it used a yeah. lot of social Darwinism to support, did, yeah. yeah, to yeah. support the legislation that was actually really entrenching the white Australia policy um, in, you know, everything we do, but particularly yeah. in immigration. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, just some of the things that uh, has been said, um, you know, Alfred Deakin was one of those uh, politicians that didn't necessarily hold back in terms of sharing he, what he really thinks um, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the Japanese. And... Uh, I mean, there's a million different kind of quotes I guess you could pick from, but um, mm. what really stood out to you in those debates and, I mean, in probably some of the less thinly veiled, like the, the just really blatant, um, you know, mm -hmm. rhetoric? Well, look, one of the main themes in the, in the debate, which goes on for months, so we're talking about, I never added up the pages, but we're talking about many hundreds of pages of Hansard here. Um, by the way, it's now accessible on online. There's a very good Hansard uh, uh, website with a very good search engine, so you can Excellent. follow this up fairly easily. Anybody can if they they want to, and I, can, I think I have to say to you, I probably couldn't have written this book without it. It was so handy. Um, but look, the, to answer your question, the, the language is really interesting because one of the main themes that comes through in, uh, constantly in the debate or continuously in the debate is miscegenation, the fear of the mixing of the races. And the Labor leader, Chris Watson, John Christian Watson, actually says, look, we can't have them in this country because they are not people that we would want to marry our sisters. They're not people we'd want to share 
our table with at home. They're not people we'd invite into our home, etc., etc. Um, and the idea was, and so the, some of the language, they, the talk was of things like race pollution, race dilution, um, the white blood getting thinner and thinner, language like that, or, which again, as, as you suggested before, was to do with the social science associated with race thinking in the late 19th century and, and social, social Darwinism. A real fear that if the, if the higher races and the lesser races, and again I'm using the terminology of the time, were to interbreed, another, another term, um, then the lower races would always bring down the higher races. It would never work the other way. And there's some, there's some pretty shocking, at least from our 2018 point of view, some pretty shocking talk about, about that. It, it, um, it did go on and on, and I was surprised to find that um, miscegenation was one of the, one of the, really, the really main, main themes. That related, by the way, to the great value that... Um, the Commonwealth parliamentarians who were debating this bill put in put on white Australia itself, or race purity, or the idea of an of a, of the last continent on earth that could in fact wall itself off, retreat into racial seclusion, and have this kind of pure white pure white nation. The really important point to understand is that this, at the time, was understood as a positive ideal, a very good thing, and not only that, it was understood. I mean, there's no shame about this. There was great pride. That's the point. It was it was understood as as the prerequisite for all of the great ambitions, the high aspirations, the um, plans for reform, for a bigger, better, brighter Australia. All of that. It was accepted. I think widely accepted that. Um, all of that hinged on race purity, because as I said, if you didn't have race purity, the understanding was you're only going to go down. But if you have the other side of that coin, is if you have race purity, you can indeed embark on this. I mean, the timing of on this great, you know, social national experiment called Federation, the new nation of Australia. The timing's really interesting because. I suppose you'd have to say it's... Ex I mean, there are reasons why Federation happens in 1901, but I think... I've never thought about this before, but I think you could say it's accidental that that, that timing places the new nation um, or brings about the new nation at a moment when all of these anxieties are swirling around and when the thinking about the racial hierarchy and what's going to happen and you know where where are the, where are all the different races going to end up is really quite quite powerful in the certainly in the intellectual culture at the time um so yeah that's i think that's my answer is that does that Yes, yes, it does, and um, and certainly some of the quotes you highlight happened during the conscription debate, and um, mm. William Morris Hughes or Billy Hughes, uh, who was very short and had a really um, odd voice, a very kind of gravelly, like strong, yeah. coarse voice. Uh, he said that, um, you know, he was trying to galvanise the Australian men to, quote, fight for white Australia in France. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, and I guess that's what this book is doing, is directly tying that um, yeah. uh anxiety and fear and concern and proactive shaping of mm. Australia as a distinct 
um, breed or race uh, behind the the strategy to go to war. It was one of the motivations, not the only one, of course. Um, Certainly people were motivated to be loyal to, you know, the empire. Um, But this is, as you said, the story behind the story. Um, Mm. How did you, I guess, come across the story behind the story, like what was it for you when you were researching that suggested to you there was more of a um, coherent or intentional strategy? Well, um, when I was teaching history um, back in the last century, (laughs) he says, in the the 1980s and 1990s at at Sydney University before I decided to become a freelance writer, I, I was... I did become increasingly aware that there were about 20 books in the realm of of foreign policy and Australian foreign policy and diplomacy that were well known in the in the business in academe as it were but you know that weren't well known at all um, beyond beyond that some of them were foreign policy books some of them were biographies and so for example there was a wonderful biography um, about Billy Hughes written two-volume biography that was written in the um, or published in one of them in the 1960s one in the 1970s um, and some of the as, so just as an example that particular biography by L.F. Fitzharding you know had a very fascinating chapter on Hughes's um, voyage to England in the middle of the war I think he leaves in um, early 1916 and he's there in London for quite a while and one of the reasons that he goes one of the foremost reasons is the fear of Japan what's happened I mean I think you linked up the background really nicely to the to the period of the war um, and so we are now talking about um, conscription and the and, and the fighter uh, fight around that what what happened was that Once the war was underway, and Japan was a major ally, one of the major allies of Britain, um, Japan's importance um, only grew, you know, exponentially as time went on and as the the British got more and more bogged down in Europe in the Western, on the Western Front and so on. And so the the, the Japanese really were kind of looking after the Pacific for... Um, the, for the, uh, what we can now call the Allies, the Entente Forces, Britain and co. Um, and and um, they were pressing very hard, for example, for the Australians to... Um, they were using the opportunity, as, any, <laughs> as any, any self-interested nation would, to press their own interests at the, at the same time as being a very good ally. They, they were pressing mm-hmm. very hard for Australia to join a thing called the Anglo-Japanese Commercial Treaty, which was a complement to the military treaty, but one of the clauses in that treaty was re- um, reciprocal rights of entry, residency and land acquisition, i.e. in Australia and Japan. And, of course, Hughes, who was a race fanatic, would have none of that. That would have imperiled white Australia. So one of his top concerns when he went to London was just that, the, um, the what he thought was the disproportionate influence of an Asiatic nation at the centre of the empire. And the British were saying to Hughes, look, you know, we need these people. We need this nation, the Japanese nation. You must do nothing to offend them, etc., etc." So, again, he was feeling great pressure to make concessions that would have weakened the white Australia policy. And I think what happened, and I argue this, I think with quite a bit of evidence um, in the book, is that he became convinced that conscription i.e. the last fighting to the last ma- the last Australian man and the last Australian shilling was a racial necessity for Australia. Um, 
So that's the answer. I mean, there were, I could mention other books, but I ju I've just given you the one, the one book that, that really does focus <clears throat> on on this uh, this trip to this trip of his to um, to to Britain. Um, and the backroom, all of the backroom talk and all the backroom concerns about Japan. I mean, when Hughes was barnstorming, you know, the town halls of England and Scotland and making fabulous speeches that um, really, really stirred the nation, he had to talk about Germany, and he was very happy to talk about Germany because he was one of one of the one of the foremost advocates of a war to the bitter end against Germany. But behind the scenes, the the worry about Japan from an Australian point of view was an absolutely major worry. And he wrote home to his um, acting prime minister, the deputy, um, the, sorry, the, the defence minister, George Pierce, and set this out. And he said, all our fears have been confirmed. You know, the, the Japanese are, are pressing for the undoing of white Australia. They are, they are, at the end of the war, going to grab the Pacific Islands and we'll have them on our, you know, we'll have them sort of looking over our back fence. They'll be so close. All, all sorts of anxieties like that are, are, um, are concerning him. So, that, so really what I'm doing from beginning to end is following through this very powerful thread, as I said, of, on the one hand, um, fear of Japan, and on the other hand, distrust of Britain. Um, it's, it's. Um, I mean, this, the dilemma for Australia was unavoidable dependence on Britain and uncertain reliability, um, and and uh, you know, thereby hangs a tail. I think. Yes, and it's important to point out that Australia didn't have um, its own defence forces that were um, supposed to be deployed overseas. They had a home uh, defence force yep. um, and there was compulsory service for that, but certainly not um, anywhere near the uh, type of defence force that Britain had. And uh, as you say... Um, Britain become became less and less reliable in terms of um, mm. coming to the aid of Australia um, to defend them. And obviously yeah. their deep alliance with Japan um, yeah, just yeah. goes to show that they perhaps thought that there are times when perhaps Japan can fill in when Britain is unable to or doesn't yeah. want to. Yes, that was one of the great concerns that... And, and this, that, that was a concern long before the war began. That in the event that, a, that Britain, that it, it mightn't just be, you know, um, deliberate desertion or anything. But in the event that Britain, for example, is tied up in a war against the Russians in India or something, a war for the very heart of the empire, then Australia simply might be, or might have to be abandoned. And one of the, you, you mentioned the sort of national orientation of defence thinking, and for and the Navy, that's spot on. A really important thread in the story is the way that successive Australian governments in the 1900s, i.e. before the war, develop or become very committed to the idea of, a, of a, an army for national defence, not for imperial adventures, and a navy for national defence, not for imperial um, adventures. And it's only around about 1910 that they roll over. That they re that that's the, Labor, the Fisher Labor government realizes that um, that that to tie up their security, they are going to have to do what the British have been pressing them to do for years, and that is commit to the pre preparation for a world war. Um, commit, in other words, not to primarily a national defence, but to being some part of um, a, um, an, an imperial engagement, pro probably in in Europe. But as we know it. Began in, it began in Gallipoli and then ended up in Europe. 
Yes. And um, Peter, just we've got um, a minute or so left, but I just want to raise the Treaty of um, Versailles and the Peace Conference Mm. because um, Billy Hughes went to that conference and, you know, threw his weight around a bit in terms of Australia's contribution because it was significant in terms of um, per capita and, and, you know, the size of our population. What um, Mm. happened there in terms of that um, jockey for influence and also um, the pushing out of the Japanese. Well, Hughes went along to um, Hughes went along to the uh, the peace conference at Versailles, committed to um, a brutal peace, um, and, and w- with no concessions whatsoever to the rebuilding of of Germany. Um, the idea, his idea, was the isolation of Germany. The that they would establish imperial trade blocks. Um, they would they would seize um, as much of German territory and um, resources as they possibly could. Um, he was committed to ensuring that the Japanese. He had to make concessions on this front, but he was committed to ensuring that the Japanese didn't get hold of any um, German possessions south of the equator. And he was successful on that front. Um, the J- Japanese had also put up to the. Um, to the conference a thing called the racial equality clause thinking being very hopeful that given their commitment to the cause um the fact that they hadn't um gone over to germany as he suspected they would um and that they'd been um very good allies um thinking that it would probably get through and that the that part of the covenant of the new league of nations would be indeed a racial equality clause well hughes um, led the fight against that, and it was um, in the end defeated. And the and the Japanese were um, 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 pr- pretty unhappy with that outcome. They thought it was terribly, terribly un- unjust. Indeed. And when he got back, sorry, I, Peter. I'm going to have yep. to to cut you off. I'm really sorry because no it's um so so interesting, and uh, and I'm really hoping that people can engage with this topic more deeply by um, looking into it uh, by reading your book. And I really I commend you for, um, for raising something which isn't really in our public memory and discussion of, of the Great War. And, um, yeah, congratulations on some really important research. Thanks very much, Amy. Much appreciated. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.